So here we go. All loaded up. The shift is on, but the infield is in. It's Bogarts, Hernandez, and Holt on the right side. Only Devers, even with the base at third on the left side. Peterson at third, Bellinger at second, Pollock at first. Muncy waits. 3-1. And that is inside ball four. And the Dodgers have taken the lead 5-4. That proved to be the winning run in 12 innings last night. The Dodgers take down the Red Sox. The final score ended up being 7-4 on Sunday night baseball. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Glad to have you along as always. You're dialed into the sports pen. I appreciate you doing so. Glad to have you along once again. We have another week of sports that we're going to break down for you, including a marathon Sunday. We had Wimbledon and we had Sunday night baseball that combined for a length of 10 hours and 37 minutes yesterday. Wimbledon, 4 hours, 57 minutes, and Novak Djokovic outlasts Roger Federer via the new Wimbledon fifth set tiebreaker rules, meaning that if two players are tied at 12 in the fifth set tiebreaker you no longer have to win by two. From there, it's the next point, and that went to Novak Djokovic. And I give him a ton of credit for the job he did outlasting Federer, but then he diminished it a little bit with his post-game celebration. Did you guys catch that? He ate a piece of grass from Wimbledon. Keep in mind, it's a grass surface at Wimbledon. He picked up a blade of grass and he ate it? I don't know if that's the equivalent to kissing the bricks at the brickyard. I don't know, I found that gross. I mean, you just had one of the best performances in Wimbledon history, and then you eat a piece of grass that you and your sweaty shoes have been running up and down all afternoon for almost five hours? I don't know about that one, Joker, but nonetheless, congrats on a wonderful victory yesterday. How about Federer, 37 years old, playing a match like that? I can't imagine how he's feeling today. Both him and Djokovic, they look good afterwards. They look like they just came out of the salon and they were giving coherent interviews to the press. I can't imagine what that would take on your body. I played tennis in high school, and I thought that was rough. I thought I woke up sore after that. I tell you what, I couldn't imagine how they're feeling today. Lots of Tylenol, lots of sore muscles they got to be stretching out. Well, I tell you what, we've got a lot to get to today over the course of the next hour. We have got a couple of guests join me. One got to call history this weekend. He got to call a baseball first and we're going to have him here to talk about it. A history-making play out east. That interview coming up here in about 15 minutes. We have got the LeBron Anthony Davis jersey controversy. Plus, we've got the Wisconsin sports update. We've got baseball talk. Maybe a little bit of speculation. And time permitting, we might even get to a little college football today. All that and more coming up over the course of the next hour here on ESPN-UP. But I tell you what, on Golik and Wingo, as you hear them every morning from 6 to 10 here on ESPN-UP, as well as ESPN Radio, they like to play a game every Monday morning called Who Won the Weekend? And they have some great choices, but I'm not sure that there was any more obvious choice than Who Won the Weekend This Weekend. And for me, that occurred Friday night. The real winners of the weekend won it on Friday night. And they would be the late Tyler Skaggs, his family and friends, and the Los Angeles Angels. In case you missed it, Friday night the Angels played their first home game since the passing of pitcher Tyler Skaggs a couple of weeks ago. They invited his mother Debbie to throw out the first pitch prior to the game, and she threw an absolute strike. She threw a bullet right down the middle her son would have been really proud. Some might have taught her that. The Angels all donned Skaggs number 45. Everyone's jersey number was 45 that night. And then the Angels as a team combined to no-hit the Seattle Mariners. 13-0 win for the Angels. Between two different pitchers, no hits were allowed. Taylor Cole started the game and worked two scoreless innings. And then Felix Pena got the win going the last seven. They struck out a combined eight, and they walked just one. The Angels said afterwards it was partly Tyler Skaggs' no-hitter, too. What an amazing moment that had to be. These guys, Cole and Pena, they were part of the same pitching staff as Tyler Skaggs. He's in the dugout with the rest of those guys. Mike Trout blasts a home run that goes 454 feet in Skaggs' memory. Very similar to D. Gordon a few years ago after the passing of Jose Fernandez. You know what? Here's what makes me think there was absolutely no coincidence involved here. The last time a no-hitter was thrown in the state of California, an MLB team threw a no-hitter in the Golden State, July 13, 1991, the day Tyler Skaggs was born. 
Now, I'm a man of faith. I know not everybody is, and I'm not telling you you have to be, but stories like that convince me even more that there is a higher power who's in charge of all things. For me, that's comforting. I don't know about you, but that's way too amazing of a story. For me, there was no bigger winner this weekend than the Los Angeles Angels. No matter what happens the rest of this season, that is probably going to be the highlight moment for all of Major League Baseball in 2019. Whether you're a person of faith or not, we can all agree how cool of a moment that was over in Anaheim. I tell you what, the other big story coming out of Los Angeles County this weekend, this one we switched to basketball. The Los Angeles Lakers at odds with Nike. LeBron James and Anthony Davis specifically. Now, in case you missed it, LeBron and Anthony Davis planned on switching jersey numbers. LeBron was going to gift Anthony Davis his jersey number 23. Because AD has worn that his entire NBA career, LeBron presumably was going to wear number 6, which he did with the Miami Heat. Not so fast as Nike, who outfits the NBA and sponsors LeBron and AD shoe deals. Nike says with the inventory they have of number 23 Laker jerseys in stock, the LeBron Laker jerseys they have already, that LeBron has to wait at least one more year before giving it up. Unless either the Lakers or LeBron would like to buy out of pocket the excess inventory of LeBron number 23 Laker jerseys from Nike. It wouldn't make sense for LeBron or the Lakers to do so, so LeBron is going to stick with number 23 again this season. Anthony Davis, meanwhile, is going to wear number 3 with the Lakers, a number that he has not worn since elementary school. Now, I get that. I get there's a lot of financial incentives that go into this. But here's this. Maybe I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, but Nike may have more to gain by allowing LeBron and AD to change jersey numbers. From a financial standpoint, yeah, they might take a hit that LeBron number 23 jerseys may not sell like they were, that they still got a lot of unsold jerseys they won't know what to do with. But here's the thing. You've got two top five players on one team. They're both going to get new jersey numbers. AD is going to get a whole new team entirely. And being top five players, they're both going to be top five jersey sellers. A lot of people who bought LeBron number 23 Laker jerseys are probably going to buy LeBron number 6 Laker jerseys. Certainly Laker fans who are excited about Anthony Davis or even Anthony Davis fans he brings over from New Orleans are going to buy Anthony Davis Laker jerseys. So yeah, Nike might have taken a hit on their unsold number 23 LeBron jerseys, but here's the thing. With speculation that LeBron may end up doing this jersey number switch a year from now, where he takes 6 and Anthony Davis gets 23 a year from now... Are people going to think of the extra LeBron 23 jerseys as temporary? Will that make them less apt to buy them? Because of that shadow of doubt, Nike may not sell those extra number 23 LeBron jerseys anyway. I don't know if LeBron is planning on switching to number 6 next year and Anthony Davis is going to take 23, but you got to think that's a possibility. Nike said they've got to wait at least one year. Maybe they do that in a year. It may be just me, but if the consumer has doubt that LeBron is going to keep wearing that jersey next year, they're not going to buy it. They're going to buy a player's jersey that they know is safe. Or else just wait a year until they see what happens. I'm not an expert. I'm not with Nike. But I do know that when a top-tier player like that, let alone two, switch jersey numbers, that is a goldmine for jersey vendors. Well, I tell you what I said, time permitting, we might get into college football. I still got a couple of minutes until my guest joins me on the ESPN-UP phone line. Let's do a little college football right now because media day starts today, at least in the SEC. It's a big year for Jim Harbaugh. Is this a make or break year for him? A lot of Michigan fans believe it is. It's year five. He's delivered four 10-win seasons, but no victories over Ohio State and no playoff appearances. Now, Jim's a legend in Michigan. He has been for a long time. And winning 10 games every year, some coaches would kill for that. But that's not the standard at Michigan. They're not happy with 11-2, 10-3, Big Ten divisional runner-ups. They want championships. They want conference championships and then eventually national championships. So sure, Jim has had success early on, but you haven't beat the perennial rival and you're not taking that next step. Michigan's in a similar situation as Nebraska a few years ago. Bo Pelini won nine games every year, but he never took that next step. Nebraska fans were happy with the success. They were happy perennially being a top 25 team every year, 
But they kept asking, so now what? Michigan fans are the same way. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but that is the standard in Ann Arbor. So by that logic, this is a make-or-break year for Jim Harbaugh. Is it Big Ten championship or bust? Is it beat Ohio State or bust? Do you have to get both this season? Can you get one or the other? Will Jim Harbaugh ever take the next step at Michigan? That's what Wolverine fans want to know. I tell you what, I've got a list in front of me of the last 11 coaches who have won a Big Ten championship within their first five seasons at their school. Let me give you that list. Only one of the last 11 coaches to win a Big Ten title in his first five years has done it in his first season, and that was Coach Bo. Coach Bo, when he was at the helm of Michigan. A couple of coaches did it during their second year, Jim Tressel and Joe Paterno. Then three during their third season at their respective school, Lloyd Carr, James Franklin, and Urban Meyer. Four guys did it during their fourth year, Woody Hayes, Barry Alvarez, Mark D'Antonio, and Kirk Ferentz. And then Brett Bielma did it during his fifth year. All those coaches won a conference championship within their first five seasons at their respective school. So where does Jim Harbaugh fit in when you're ranking college football coaches, when you're looking at value of the head coach? Does Jim Harbaugh fall in with that category, those 11 that I just rattled off? There are a few interesting names on that list you got to consider. Brett Bielma had a lot of success at Wisconsin. He's certainly been in battle, or at least his coaching career has been in battle as of late. Who would you rather have coaching your team right now, Brett Bielma or Jim Harbaugh? Right now you might say Harbaugh with Bielma struggling, but how about present Harbaugh against Wisconsin Bielma? Mark D'Antonio has delivered a conference championship his fourth year at Michigan State. He even brought him to the college football playoff. Now, they got thumped 38-0 that year, but they were there. Michigan fans, would you rather have Mark D'Antonio rather than Jim Herbaugh? How about Kirk Ferentz is on there? Ferentz has been at Iowa longer than any other coach in college football has been at his respective school. Ferentz won a Big Ten championship during his fourth year with the Hawkeyes. They came within a yard of making the college football playoff back in 2015. Remember that? A goal line stand by Michigan State won them the Big Ten championship? Would you rather have Kirk Ferentz rather than Jim Harbaugh right now? I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer. I just want you to think about this. What is your standard? What is your coaching criteria as a Michigan Wolverines fan? Is this a make or break year for Harbaugh? I've been around enough Michigan fans. I've been in Michigan long enough to know that the answer is yes. And by make or break, that means either A, you beat Ohio State, B, you win the Big Ten, or C, the best option, you do both of them. Harbaugh has not checked off options A, B, or C during his time in Michigan. He has to do at least one of those this year, in my opinion, to keep his job. They promoted Shea Patterson as the end-all, be-all, that he was going to be the guy that took them over the top when they brought him in last season. Notre Dame beat him with a backup quarterback. One of their top three rivals ended up having two quarterbacks better than Patterson. Now Harbaugh's given up play-calling duties. Will that be enough to get Michigan over the top? Harbaugh may go 11-1 and this year, but if that loss is to Ohio State and that's what keeps them from going to the Big Ten Championship, then he may be out of a job. Whether that's right or wrong, the Michigan standard is not losing to Ohio State and not being content with settling for less than a Big Ten Championship. I tell you what, let's take a time out. I've got my guest ready. A professional baseball first. Some hate it, some love it, but it happened on Saturday night, and I got the guy who called it. That is next here on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. As the one pitch misses outside, Tony Thomas is going to try to steal first. There is no throw. He's aboard, and we've seen it. Somebody has stolen first base. It is a professional baseball first, Austin. That sound courtesy of the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs Baseball Network. Andrew Banstra and Austin Rooney had the call. It's finally happened. A baseball player has stolen first base. Last week, following their All-Star break, the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball, an eight-team independent pro league, adapted a series of rule changes, including an extra-inning international tiebreaker, an automated ball and strike system, and as you just heard, runners are now allowed to steal first base. Their partnership with Major League Baseball gives Rob Manfred the ability to test out new rule changes 
at the independent league level. And we're joined by the man who had the call of history, Andrew Banster, a friend of the show. He was on last week. He is the voice of the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. Andrew, last week we were talking about some of the rule changes coming up. We focused mainly on the automated strike zone. Who knew that you would be the one who'd get to call history? Someone steals first base. Tell me about that moment. Yeah, man, I guess you just never know what's going to happen. It's kind of interesting because some of the talk in the clubhouse before the game was, you know, some of the pitchers weren't happy about it. Because if you think about it, it is kind of, it's playing against the pitchers. It's helping offense. Some of the batters seem to not have any interest in doing it. Um, One of our catchers was up to bat. He had a very good opportunity to steal first, and he just looked back at the dugout and shook his head no as to say, I'm not going to steal first. Um, I talked to him after the game. He said, I just want to hit. I don't, I don't want to steal first base. So finally, after about 30 times of people having opportunities, much more than you would ever imagine in a game that you would see opportunities to steal first base being that if a catcher doesn't catch a ball. So in this circumstance, like it had happened many times before, the catcher sees the ball go past, nobody's on, and he's just decided to become lackadaisical with it because – a, it's, that's kind of what he's used to his whole life. But B, nobody's even thought about stealing first. Well, the batter up, Tony Thomas, he kind of just stood there for a couple seconds. He's very, very fast. And then he said, okay, well, the catcher, Anderson De La Rosa, was reaching back for a ball from the umpire. And Tony just took off for first. And it was it was a shock in the moment because it seemed, I had almost kind of forgotten about it and that there were so many chances and people just weren't taking the opportunities, but they really made sense in the situation, and Tony would come around to score the very first run that we scored in the game, and we went on to win. So it's, it's really interesting. As a broadcaster, do you prepare for that moment? Did you have a call set? You felt like you wanted to nail that call. To be honest, no. I, um, I had A lot of thought had gone into the fact that what if we are the first people to have it. Um, in fact, I was very ready to distribute it should that have happened, and it did. But to be honest with you, I, I did not think about that. And um, no, that's a really good question, though. On on the flip side, I will say that I've started to become really accustomed to these rules and that I thought it was going to take a long time, but honestly, some of these rules are becoming second nature to me. Tell me about how this is scored. Now, I understand it hurts batting average, but helps on base percentage. How's this scored in your scorebook? So that yeah, it's a great question. So... Interestingly, yeah, you're exactly right. It hurts the batting average, which even further takes some incentive away from actually performing the act. Um, but it goes down to the fielder's choice, um, which, which is interesting. Now, I, I'm not 100% sure if this is backed by the league. This is somewhere I read, I believe, online, and it may have been associated. I read that the reason that it's called the fielder's choice is because the catcher has the opportunity to throw out the man at first. Not sure if that's... 100% correct, because that doesn't make all that much sense. But the fielder's choice is technically how it is scored. Interestingly, the batter doesn't get credit for a stolen base in the book, though. So it technically, if you want to get really technical, he just reached on a fielder's choice. But it's, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting the way it's all working. So with this rule change, a batter can take off for first base on any count, including a drop third strike with a runner at first. I tell you what, what if this were to happen? I don't know if they have a certain explanation for it. The runner takes off for first base. The catcher fields the ball and throws it there. Does the runner have the opportunity to race back to home plate if he's in a rundown and resume his at-bat, or is it a forced play over at first? See, and that's kind of one of the interesting things about all of these rule changes is the fact that the reason that it is happening here is because there's a lot of things that, I mean, I think that the MLB has gone through and thought about every possible circumstance, but at the end of the day, there's just going to be some things you don't think about. And that, I don't know if they've thought about that. My guess is they have, but I don't think that you can do that. I think that it's a forced out. Now, that's obviously not a concrete answer, and it's just one of those ones that, there's so many different potential outcomes, and that's kind of something we're trying to test out and smooth out so that hopefully if the MLB likes the results of this, they can take it. Now, I'll tell you one other thing. Um, after, so I talked about the fact that every time there was a pass ball, the catchers were just kind of lackadaisical. They didn't sprint after it, what have you. 
after that first one happened, our catcher was very on his guard. In fact, so a little bit further in the rule, to just kind of a caveat here, is that the rule stands that if a batter takes both of his feet out of the batter's box and the umpire discerns that he is making an attempt to go to first base, that is when that's when he's officially stealing first base. So then that's when the you know, the play occurs and that you can throw it out to first. He would be out outside of that. He could just step out of the batter's box and that wouldn't necessarily count. But the point being that every time after that, when a batter would step out of the batter's box, our catcher would tag them just to make sure because there's a little bit of a gray area there. So it's one of those things that's still being smoothed out, but I think that we may start seeing more of it. Do I think that it ever could get to the MLB? I think it's really hard to say, but I think that it's a really exciting thing at the same time. Talking with Andrew Banstra, play-by-play voice of the Southern Maryland Blue Crab Saturday night. The Crabs were the first team to steal first base in the history of professional baseball. Andrew was on the call for it. Like you mentioned, it had to be interesting for the guys, exciting maybe for a few of them when that first base was stolen for the first time. After this occurred, did you get a chance to talk with some of the guys in the clubhouse? Were they excited about it? Did they think, this is something I want to do too? Or was it like your catcher you mentioned earlier, he just wants to stay in there and hit? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think that I was talking with Tony Thomas, the guy that did steal first base. He, in fact, was saying, you know, this isn't really something I thought about. Um, the opportunity presented itself, and he just kind of did it. And he is also, you know, very – he's surprised, and he can't believe how much traction this is getting. Now, I, I won't say who it was, but there was another guy on the team that um, I did hear that he actually said, you know, I wish I would have done that because of all the press that it's getting. I do think that he had the opportunity to do it, but he was one of the individuals that said, okay, I, I don't think this is something that – I'm going to be the first person to attempt. So there was some reaction saying, man, I wish I was the one to do that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been interesting, man. My, one of my questions going forward that I'm wondering, is this going to happen? Are people going to start doing it more frequently? Or, you know, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see because there was so much hesitation beforehand. Well, and it changes the way that you construct your roster, does it not? You want to go out and get guys that are good base runners, have a lot of speed, and certainly you need to have a good defensive catcher because if a ball gets to the backstop in that league, you're pretty much automatically putting a guy on first. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and in addition with the, the speed aspect of it, we saw another one of these rule changes really come into play in one of our games this weekend. We are, in fact, a team that very, very rarely steals. Through 70 games, we had stolen just 25 bases coming into Game 71. In Game 71, a left-hander was pitching against us, and one of the new rule changes is that to pick off to a base, you have to step off of the rubber. So you can't just do a traditional lefty pickoff move, which means that on first movement, you can just steal on a lefty automatically. So we stole three bases in two innings of one game as compared to 25 in 70 games. So... It's something that really has already shown us that it changes the game, and it's going to be another one that's really interesting. It's pretty specifically just working against left-handers, but when we do see them in, it's been a pretty significant change. Well, and you've had about a week now of using the automated ball and strike system to call pitches behind the plate. How's that been working out? So that's a really interesting question. So interestingly, it hasn't been implemented all across the league, and I, it's... Um, so we don't have it in play here. The, the software is here. It's working, but it hasn't been implemented in that it hasn't been given to the umpires. So we are tracking that data. Are we using it with the umpires? Not yet. But other teams in the league are right now. For example, the York Revolution, their software is all ready to go because they did it at the All-Star Game. So they are using it. I do know that there was one call that went that got pretty popular online for – looking like it was awfully low and being called strike number three. There has been, and that's, a, that's getting pretty nitpicky there, because from what I've seen, it's really, really been fantastic. The only other really, really nitpicky thing is that from time to time, there's somewhat of a delay between the time that the 
pitch is thrown and the catcher catches it to the time that the umpire gets the the little bug in his earpiece telling him ball or strike. So that's really the only two things. Um, I got a chance to put one of those those earpieces on. So what it is is the umpire just has an iPhone in his pocket, and it's, a, it's an app on his iPhone that correlates with this data that is telling him whether it's a ball or a strike. He has AirPods in. So I had a chance to put one of those AirPods on, and it's just incredible to see what technology can do. I was, uh, you're just watching a live baseball game, and you have an AirPod in, and once across the strike zone, a little robotic voice in your ear tells you either ball or strike, and that was that was mind blowing. So it's really been awfully successful. Major League Baseball has done a terrific, terrific job, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it pans out. If it is as successful as it looks like, it's going to be an hour league. To be honest with you, Tanner, I was talking with some other people. I'd be surprised if this wasn't implemented in the MLB in the next four to five years because in my mind it just makes so much sense. The technology's there. Why not use it? So how did the umpires relay the result of a pitch to the players and to the crowd? Did they still point and do the strike call? That's a great question. So they do still just signal ball or strike. So that can sometimes be a little interesting. So we have, for example, we've seen a couple of times there's been three games, All-Star game and prior, that have used this automatic balls and strike system. In a couple of instances, I mentioned that delay that we saw. So sometimes the catcher will have already thrown it back to the pitcher. Everybody thinks it's a ball, and all of a sudden you're rung up for strike number three. So that is one of the interesting components to it. But to be honest, it's outside of that, it's, it's really, really been terrific. It, it is essentially... It is a 3D box that hovers over home plate, obviously virtually. You can't see it. And if any part of the baseball, from the front of the plate to the back of the plate and from the side of the plate to the side of the plate, if any part of the baseball touches that virtual box, even if it just clips an absolute centimeter of the box, then it is called a strike. So that's, that's kind of how the strike zone works, and it's going to be really interesting, man. One thing we were wondering on the show here for the past week, I grew up a Twins fan, still am, and I grew up watching Ron Gardenhire get ejected from a few games. He was always famous for that. Still is with the Detroit Tigers. Were any managers upset with a call but didn't know who to argue with? Like, do you go out and argue with the human umpire who didn't make the call? How did coaches react to controversial calls? So the best example of that would be the High Point Rockers, the team in their inaugural season in our league, they have a coach, Frank Viola. Uh, he's yes, a, former he's Minnesota twin. That's right. So he is—he's actually—he's a—he's a, not the head coach. He is on the coaching staff of the Rockers, and he had a little bit of a disagreement because the technical wording of this rule change, as we continue, is home plate umpire assisted by radar tracking system. So he was under the understanding that the home plate umpire in some circumstances was overruling what he was hearing in his earpiece. And I think Frank Viola, per his Twitter, was angry that he, you know, they didn't know whether it was the umpire making these decisions, was it the track man, um, the automated balls and strike system making these decisions, or what exactly was going on. So he got tossed in the first inning. And if you, if you want to go to his Twitter, he tweeted about it. So, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting situation. Who do you argue with? But past that, kind of takes some of that out of the game very much like uh, video replay did a couple of years ago. And eventually, we may not see as much argument, but I have to believe that uh, MLB managers will still find something to argue about. Well, Andrew, last thing before I let you go. Have they come up with a name for this system? You saw in the Women's World Cup they use video automatic replay system. They call it VAR. It kind of gave a name to it. I wonder if they have something like this for robotic umpires, what have you. One suggestion I heard was Russ, Robot Umpire Strike Zone System, something like that. Has there been any talk like that? Like they might come up with a creative name for it, kind of to humanize the system in a way? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that typically the, uh, the league has tried to stray away from the term umpire, or from the term robot, um, because I assume because that, gives people the, the impression maybe that there's an actual robot back there, which would be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, I one that I have heard is ABS, which is automated balls and strikes. Um, that it's not really all that catchy, but that is one that I've heard. I've also heard the TrackMan system, which mm. is the company that creates the technology that goes up and analyzes all of this data. I've also heard um, radar tracking system. So there's not really a there's not really a set phrase yet. But if anybody, uh, any of your listeners can come up with a good one, I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, the Atlantic League might just be open to to getting a good nickname in there. Andrew Banster is a play-by-play voice of the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. He called history Saturday night. He was on the call of the first player to steal first base in baseball history. Andrew, always good talking to you, my man. I can't wait to see how this all plays out. We'll all be following the Atlantic League closely. All the best going forward. Hey, thanks so much, man. You know how much I appreciate you as always, and uh, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you for a little bit. Let's take a timeout when we come back. The Wisconsin Sports Update with Charlie Bramer next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Charlie Bramer joins us in just a second for the Wisconsin Sports Update. But first, your Sports Center update. Former boxing champion Parnell Whitaker has passed away at the age of 55 after being struck by a vehicle last night. Whitaker won a gold medal at the 1984 Olympics, won world titles in four different weight classes, and was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2006. England topped New Zealand via super over tiebreaker yesterday to claim their first ever World Cup championship in cricket. Both sides finished regulation with 241 runs and each scored 15 runs in the super over, but England won via tiebreaker criteria by scoring more runs within the boundaries. And finally, on average, donkeys kill more people annually than plane crashes. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. It is Monday, and that means we welcome Charlie Bramer in. He gives us the lowdown on Wisconsin sports. Bucks, Packers, Brewers, Badgers, everything in between. What's up, Charlie? Not a lot, Tanner. I'm glad to hear that it's safer to travel by plane than by donkey. How about that? I'm a big aviation fanatic, and I'm going to be going to the EAA convention. That's something good going on in Wisconsin hey, right now. Hey, all right. Where is that? Where do they have that? Um, That's going to be in Oshkosh. Hmm. Um, it's it's coming up real soon here. Me and my dad, my or my dad and I, uh, rather, go every year. Hmm. It's a great time. It's the world's biggest air show. If you've never been to an air show... They're just fantastic. Even if you're not big into aviation, there's everything there. Last year, uh, Antonio Freeman was there doing autographs and stuff. I mean, and and you just see famous people all over. You can just walk up to them, talk to them. It's all really cool. Harrison Ford crashes plane there or something one time. Maybe he didn't crash it, but he's always there. It's really cool. It's just such a great fun time. Big Harrison Ford fan. Yeah, me too, definitely. Favorite Harrison Ford movie? Um, just all the Star Wars. I okay. mean, I have to cop out some of the some of the newer movies he's been in. I, I'm kind of like, whoa. I mean, like what what he's, right. he, he's like all grovelly voice and different, but good stuff. I like Air Force One. That might be my favorite. Honorable mention forty two. He played Branch Ricky really well. See, you are a movie buff. I love movies. I love TV and movies. I'm very media savvy. You definitely are, and I'm the type of guy that I just say all the Star Wars because. I, I get into a franchise like that, and then that's all I'll watch. How about Indiana Jones? I have never seen all the I'm Indiana Jones the club, Jones neither have I. Okay, I, cool. From what I've heard is that they're not in chronological order, and that would just confuse me. Like, that bugs me when a series is not in order. That just bugs me. See, and Star Wars is the only one like that that I could keep up with just because I was that big of a fan. I would I put in the time and effort to stay with it. Well, I tell you what, Tanner Hoops and Charlie Bramer with you. Glad to have you along, as always. Wisconsin Sports Update. The Brewers dropping a tough one yesterday. Christian Yelich homered for the 32nd time, but it wasn't enough. A big seventh inning helped San Fran get by the Brewers. And I tell you what, the offense... There's just not a lot of it. You've got Yelich, who's going and doing his thing, and then Jesus Aguilar has found his bat. Unfortunately, not a lot of the other Brewers have. No, and even, see, Christian Yelich is very interesting. I hear guys like Bill Schroeder, and, and I always make reference to him, I feel like, mentioning how Christian's in a slump. He's saying he's in a slump. During the National League televised game on Saturday, he's talking about how he can't hit right now, but he stole a couple bases, so at least he's still fast. And then Lorenzo Cain making that error, that that wasn't, oh, I guess we won't get into that. It almost cost <laughs> them the game, the one game they've won. They are 10-18 and 18 
oh, since since they were ten games over five hundred, just Ouch. to throw that out there, it just keeps getting worse and worse every week I come on. I keep thinking there's going to be a turnaround with that. But as far as getting back to Christian Yelich, he still gets his hits. He 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 finally hit a home run yesterday. It was a bit of a drought, but he's still getting his hits. He's still getting on base. The other day, I believe it was Friday, he started out 0 for 3 with three strikeouts and ended up 2 for 5 with uh, with a single and a triple. So so even when he's slumping, and, and he'll he'll say right now he, he he's having to shorten up his swing, you know he's just still that valuable as a team guy overall. He's still that good. Um, he's still getting on base, um, getting game time triples in the ninth. Always fun to watch him, but the Brewers as a whole are imploding. Uh, you knew that the Cubs were going to come out of the break. Could you have predicted this any any differently? Right. You just look at the Cubs' schedule, the teams they they're getting to face at home right now, and the Brewers have a favorable schedule overall. They got to play the Braves here coming up. That's that's not easy, of mm-hmm. course. Um, it's going to be some tough pitching matchups, but but just really overall, you knew that the Brewers were going to have to come out of the break and and keep pace with the Cubs. It wasn't going to be the same way. It, this last month wasn't going to go on for another month, and if the Brewers don't don't pick it up here quick. Things could get ugly. Well, let's talk about that Atlanta series that starts tonight with an 8-10 first pitch. They welcome the Braves, two teams trending in polar opposite directions. Milwaukee, 48-46. and Atlanta, 20 over 500 at 57-37. and They lead the East. It'll be Adrian Hauser going tonight for Milwaukee. He's got a better ERA than his opponent, Max Fried, who's quietly worked his way to nine wins this season. Yeah, and, and he's a guy, too. He's like a... I don't know. It just seems like throughout my lifetime they've always had exceptional starting pitching. And thankfully, you don't see Mike Soroka this series. Yes, thank you so much for that, Atlanta Braves. You do see Keiko, though. We do, and um, it's, you know, the Brewers have really been struggling. We're going to have to see two lefties against the Braves. They've been struggling against lefties. Hopefully, Jesus Aguilar can help with that now that he's hitting again for power. All the games were really actually fairly close against the Giants, weirdly enough to say that. They had that big blow-up inning yesterday. I'm really starting, and this is what I'm not liking to see. This is what's really bothering me. For the first time throughout Craig Council's tenure, I'm starting to question some of his moves, and and I really don't like that. I I like the the just easygoing feeling of, of trusting the manager, and everybody knows I'm a homer when it comes to especially Craig Council. I'm, I'm starting to question some of his moves. I mean, it's a 2-2 game, um, and, and the two pitchers he brings in, Corbin Burns, has an ERA of 8.5. It's, mm. it's got to be over 9 now. Brings in Corbin Burns, and then and then when Corbin, you know, the game is still close at that time. When he pulls Corbin, brings in Matt Albers. Both of, the, both of those guys have given up runs on Friday. Um, Matt Albers has been pitching a little better the last couple weeks. But but out of their whole pen to bring in those guys, they just had the all-star break. You know, um, Josh Hader had pitched two innings on Friday. So on a day's rest, he probably could have given you an inning. Obviously, they're not going to put him in unless they have a lead. But there's other guys to go to in that situation. And to go to those two pitchers when you really, really need that game, I, I just don't understand. Have you ever seen... And, and and I couldn't think of one offhand, but have you ever seen a time where this late in the season a contending team um, is going to a pitcher that has an ERA of about nine? Right. I mean, what I I can't think of a a situation. And and this is a guy that that is barely he like just cleared rookie status like you know not that long not that many innings ago or appearances ago i guess obviously it's a a cured service time in the major leagues but but really this is a guy that you know he's got great stuff he comes out throwing 98 99 i definitely don't want the brewers to give up on him but if a guy like travis shaw who has hit 60 homers the last two years combined is down in AAA because of his lack of production. I just don't understand how Corbin Burns, with the pitching they have down in San Antonio, even at AA, there's, I could go on and on with names, young guys. You know, obviously Corbin Burns, what he showed us last year in the playoffs, that was really nice, but right now it, it is not the same Corbin Burns. It is so crystal clear to see what's happening. He gave up his first two hits, his first two doubles. He got the guys into 0-2 counts, and then he's just throwing hanging sliders. It's just constantly one hanging slider after another, just cement mixer after cement mixer. 
last year his curveball was a very good pitch for him. He never throws it. He's just strictly fastball slider. There's guys that they have won with for years. Taylor Williams is down in the minors. I could go on and on with names. I guess I just won't start throwing out random names and random stats, guys in the minors. Brewers have already shown they've called up guys from the minors and not necessarily gotten the same production, which has been weird. Eventually, though, you'd think that if they they gave enough of these guys a chance, it was nice to see Jay Jackson yesterday give him two really good innings. I think he struck out five over two innings, and he looks like he could be a guy moving forward that could that could pitch in some high-leverage situations. Um, he's been in some high-leverage situations in the past. He's had major league experience. But but I just don't understand why they're not calling on more guys and, and why they just keep throwing out the same Matt Albers and Corbin Burns in, in situations where the game is still winnable. This is a big week for Milwaukee. They've got three with Atlanta and then three with Arizona to close out the week. Is there any worry, a few teams pass them, is there any worry that they could end up selling at the deadline? Depending, there are pieces I believe they could sell that wouldn't necessarily compromise beyond this season so to speak. You know, Shaw? I would say Mike Moustakis because oh, okay. I'm not really seeing him coming back next year or necessarily Yasmani Grandal. Those are a couple guys that I think they could move. If anything, begin figuring out what are we going to do to contend next year because they're probably not going to have those guys anyways. Mm-hmm. They might be able to retain one of those two players to realistically think that they're going to be able to retain both of those guys on long-term deals, which is what it's going to require you know, they're, the ownership is getting fussy of payroll being over $100 million. It'd have to be somewhere around $140, $150 million a year to retain those two guys, and I just don't see that happening. So maybe moving on from them now would be a way of figuring out how are we best going to be in contention next year. It's similar to what the Indians are going through with Trevor Bauer right now. Like, they're a team that's hanging on for dear life, trying to get a wild card spot. And Bauer may not re-sign with them this offseason. Do they want to rebuild now, or do they want to wait till next year? It seems like the Brewers are in the same spot. Yeah, and there are a few other teams, and actually a lot of teams, that are that are close. You know, they're not a, quite above 500 like the Brewers, and they haven't been 10 games over 500 like the Brewers. And I'm not saying I think that this is going to happen. Obviously, it's just a hypothetical here. But it is becoming a realistic hypothetical, and that's kind of an eerie feeling considering where this team was a month ago, uh, 10 games over 500. Well, I tell you what, let's finish it off with the Bucks here in the last couple of minutes. They haven't been making as many moves, maybe as people thought they might. A few weeks ago, I would have said they have a good enough roster to compete, and I still think they do. I still think they're going to be the top team in the East but the gap is closing. Teams are getting better in the Eastern Conference. And after signing Chris Middleton, maybe the Bucks fooled themselves into thinking the way we all did, that our roster is set. We're good enough to run the East. Now it's starting to look like they're going to need a little more depth to be able to compete with the rest of the conference. They're going to need it, obviously. The roster just keeps getting older and older. It kind of creeps in a little bit more. A coach like Budenholz or wanting to rest guys, they're going to need that veteran depth. And players are available there are multiple teams that could use players like Kyle Korver and different guys that we've named in the past that would really fit nicely with a roster like this, you know, complementary type players. They can only sign guys for veteran minimum unless they want to go into the luxury tax or unless they trade some draft picks and, and make some other moves like that John Lure move we've discussed in the past. Then they could bring in some other guys on, you know, maybe some multi-year deals, a little bit more money. But yeah, it, it, it is kind of curious how there are guys available. Obviously, summer leagues uh, going on finishing up here, and, and, and they're definitely doing some player evaluating from a free agency standpoint and looking at maybe who, who are other teams going to be releasing that they could pick up. And maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe they're just you know waiting for certain guys to become available. Maybe their little birds are chirping and they're hearing certain players going to be available that they're going to look to jump on. It's always interesting to see how this stuff plays out. And it's just so weird how throughout all sports now, it seems like it's taking longer and longer and longer for these free agent moves to play out. And, and that just kills me personally. Position-wise, where do the Bucks need to fill out the roster? Where is the biggest need for depth? You know, that's a really interesting question because there are still, I still hear a lot of people saying how the Bucks need depth in the front court, 
being as big of a DJ Wilson fan as I am now, which which is kind of a 180 degree turn on my part. I have to, you know, I've slammed him in the past on this show. So so now to say how much I love him is kind of, you know, dis- I don't want to sound disingenuous. So so I will eat that. They might want a, another veteran guy just in case, you know, in in a place of injury. Overall, I would probably say really at point guard, you know, because there was times last year when Eric Bledsoe went kind of cold and, and they needed another guard off the bench. They were able to have George Hill play alongside guys like Malcolm Brogdon and Pat Connington and they got good production. But, you know, Pat Connington and Sterling Brown, some of these backups, they can play point guard, but they're not true point guards. Uh, a guy like Jared Bayless really comes to mind. He would fit perfectly with this team right now, um, and and that's another guy who's available. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you. The Wisconsin Sports Update. Glad to have you along. Appreciate you as always, my man. We're hoping the Brewers get back on the right track. Cheer loud for me. Thank you, Tanner. I, I appreciate that, and I'll be yelling at the TV as loud as ever. <laughs> Let's take a time out when we come back. A few news and notes from baseball and basketball. FIBA World Cup next month. That's next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, be sure to look it up on demand. Get caught up with our free mobile app. You can get it from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Be sure to get that with football starting next month. A little over a month from now, and Westwood Patriot Football will come back here to ESPN-UP. I'm excited to be back on the call. I can't wait for it to get started. But I tell you what, we're still in the midst of baseball season. We've got a FIBA World Cup. That's FIBA, F-I-B-A, meaning basketball. That's coming up here in about a month. We're going to get a look at that. We have a couple of things to update you on regarding that. But we're going to take a look first at tonight's MLB scoreboard and schedule. Beginning at 7.05 when the Rays travel to take on the Yankees, Blake Snell is opposed by James Paxton. Another 7.05 start as the Phillies welcome the Dodgers. Clayton Kershaw is opposed by Zach Eflin. 7.10 start for the Tigers at Indians. Daniel Norris and Adam Plutko. Another 7.10 game as the Blue Jays visit the Red Sox. Trent Thornton is opposed by Rick Porcello. 8.05 for the Cubs and Reds at Wrigley. Luis Castillo against Kyle Hendricks. 8.10 start for the Braves and the Brewers at Miller Park. Max Fried goes up against Adrian Hauser. 8.15 the White Sox and Royals at the K. Lucas Giolito wants to retie Lance Lynn for the AL lead in total wins. He is going for his 12th tonight. He's opposed by Jacob Junis. 8.15 start for the Pirates and Cardinals at Bush Stadium. Joe Musgrove against Miles Mikolas. 8.40 start for the Giants and Rockies in Denver. Chichi Gonzalez takes on Derek Rodriguez. And finally at 10.07, Josh James and the Astros visit Griffin Canning and the Angels. That is a look at tonight's MLB scoreboard. And again, lots happened in Major League Baseball over the weekend. Yesterday, the Kansas City Royals traded Homer Bailey to Oakland. The Royals officially becoming what we all knew they would be, sellers. The question will now become, what does Cleveland do? Cleveland, you may think, still has a shot at winning the division. They may have thought that going into this weekend. They dropped two out of three at home against Minnesota. Didn't do themselves any favors in that category. Minnesota now leads the American League Central by six and a half games. What's more, Cleveland has now fallen out of playoff position. They are half a game behind Oakland for the second wild card position. They're still two games ahead of Boston. So Cleveland is going to have a decision to make before it's all said and done. This may be the most important week of the Indian season. The Indians look like they're going to be knocked off their perch as perennial kings of the American League Central. Even if Minnesota plays 500 ball the rest of the season, they still have a 90% chance to win the division over Cleveland. So is Cleveland banking on a wild card spot? And if they do, can they make a run? Their starting pitching is their strength. Their offense severely mismanaged in the offseason has been lackluster this year, particularly Jose Ramirez. And while Corey Kluber is still trying to get back and get healthy, Trevor Bauer is their top arm. And so far, indications say he may not re-sign with them this offseason. Now, Cleveland is still optimistic because they've got a lot of pitchers who were out injured and are expected to come back before the postseason. Kluber being one, Carlos Carrasco another. So does Cleveland hope that they can get all these pieces back in September and put together a run in the postseason where they can actually be a formidable team? It's a risk because what if they don't make it? What if they hold on to Bauer only for him to walk in the offseason and still miss the playoffs? Even if they make it and things don't work out, they lose that wild card game where anything can happen. 
Was it worth it? Was it worth holding on to Bauer to make the playoffs and get bounced in one game? Cleveland is going to have to make their decision here in the next week. They have to decide, is it worth waiting to September? Can we hang on until reinforcements come in the starting rotation? Or do we decide that we are going to sell, get something nice back for Trevor Bauer next year? This will be the week for Cleveland. Again, half a game out of playoff position, sitting 51-40. and Because if they don't decide this week, they're going to get left out. If they don't decide whether they're building for this year or for the future, they are going to get left out. And I'll tell you this, keeping Trevor Bauer is not enough. They are going to have to be buyers at the trade deadline. Not just keepers, but they are going to have to go out and buy some offensive pieces. Pitching isn't the problem. A guy like Shane Bieber coming up, a young guy, 23 years old, and just won the All-Star MVP, he's a guy you can build around. He can build that pitching staff going forward. That may give you more incentive to move Trevor Bauer. Obviously, Cleveland wants to have him. You probably need him to make a playoff run, but you need more than him if you're going to make a playoff run that's worth it. Is it worth it holding on to Trevor Bauer to make the playoffs only to get bounced in the wildcard game? Then Bauer probably walks, and you get nothing for him. If that happens, Cleveland may have to start going the route of Kansas City and Detroit, the White Sox, what they were doing a few years ago, and going through a total rebuild. They may be able to take a shortcut if they can get a nice return for Bauer. I tell you what, if they don't trade Bauer, they hold on to him. Is that a sign that they're confident they can get him to resign? That they know something we don't? If they were to trade him, however, likely you wouldn't want him to go to another American League Central team. And I don't know that a lot of teams would want him after this weekend when Max Kepler proved that he owns Trevor Bauer. Saturday night during Minnesota's 6-2 win over the Tribe, Kepler hit home runs and consecutive at-bats against Bauer, dating back to the last time he faced him. Max Kepler has now homered in five straight at-bats against Trevor Bauer. He becomes the first player in Major League history to hit home runs in five consecutive at-bats against the same pitcher. I don't think other American League Central teams would want Bauer knowing they'd have to see Kepler as much as they do. I tell you what, FIBA news and notes before we sign off. Anthony Davis reportedly will not play for Team USA in the upcoming Basketball World Cup. He was initially named to Team USA's roster in June. He made the final 20 cut. He reportedly will sit out to focus on the upcoming NBA season. He, however, does want to play for Team USA in the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. So Davis out for the 2019 Basketball World Cup. He is in reportedly for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Meanwhile, Ben Simmons reportedly will not play for Team Australia, which makes you wonder, who does Australia have left? Ben Simmons is the one you pretty much think about from out there. Are they going to rely on Patty Mills? Aaron Baines, maybe? Ben Simmons reportedly out for Australia, a team that's actually surprised the world on the basketball stage time and time again. They're going to have to do it, however, without a glorified four running the point. I tell you what, that is it for us on this episode of the Sports Pen. I appreciate you tuning in as always. Again, if you missed any part of the show, check it out on demand with our free mobile app. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. John Michael Hofling from ABC10 will join me. It's my hope you join us as well. Signing off from the ESPN-UPWZM studios, my name is Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.